Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. All right, welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. We're here with myself, Ron Hayes. We've got Michael Morrow, who's just getting ready to go turn into a popsicle up in Alaska. How are you, Michael? I'm, I'm a little nervous about turning into a popsicle. I've got an assignment to shoot in the Arctic coming up here for the next three weeks. I don't know why they chose February. I Couldn't we do it in March? I think there's still snow in March. But it is what it is. It's going to be fun, I guess. Yeah, it will or it won't. <laughs> I'm I'm anxious to hear either way. Yeah, me too. And our guest today is the highest ranking government official that we've ever had on the show. In fact, I think he's the first government official that we've ever had on the show. Uh, recently retired, Simone Detremont from Nova Scotia. We'd like to welcome you. This has been a long time coming. We've been talking about this for, I think, about a year now, right? A year and a bit, yeah. It's great. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's wonderful. Thank you. You're doing some really unique stuff, and I'm anxious to to get into it and and actually some a, a genre of photography that we haven't really covered on the show. And I'm uh, I'm curious to say the least. Sounds so, great. Again, welcome. So to get things started is kind of an icebreaker. You uh, you know on your website you say that you've been a, a lifelong outdoorsman. So this does not have to be photography related, but we try to ask everybody, what is your favorite ever outdoor experience? Um, I mean, I, I got some chances last year uh, that were pretty unique to shoot uh, some red winged blackbirds singing where I get the breath of the bird coming out, for example. You know, those types of things are, are pretty cool. I'm hoping tonight is a great experience. The, uh, the There's an Aurora watch for some uh, a, a high probability of northern lights tonight, which in Nova Scotia is a rare treat. So uh, me and some, a friend are going to be going out this evening to see if we can uh, get our luck at getting some uh, some Aurora, which we, we rarely get here down here in Nova Scotia. Yeah, when we get it in Wyoming, you can barely see it with the naked eye. You just have to do a, a long exposure and have a good foreground, but it's uh, it's a treat though to be able to to see even that green haze in the sky and know what else is up there. So yeah, I wish mm. you luck. Can't wait to see yeah. the images. Oh, thanks. Well, I hope we get some. High probability for Nova Scotia is still not super high. It's just high <laughs> compared to what we usually yeah. have. I feel your pain. So how did you get started? So when I made the statement about you being the highest ranking government official in, that we've had on the show, I believe you were the state's equivalent to Lieutenant governor. Uh, I was, uh, I worked as a deputy minister, which is the highest public sir. It's a public servant job. It's the highest public mm -hmm. service rank you have in, in Canadian government. The ministers are the elected officials and we're the okay. permanent bureaucrats that work underneath them to give them advice and, 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 uh, you know, they get to make the, the policy decisions, and our job is to help them implement those. Excellent. And you're recently retired, correct? Uh, that's right. Retired in September of last year. So something that I've been doing, my photography had been a, a week, a weekend passion of uh, going out and doing some photography. Uh, also a great, uh, a, a great for mental health and stress relief and uh, just getting Absolutely. some time to think. 
Uh, so I very much enjoyed that. But now I have the flexibility of doing it whenever the time is good for me, as opposed to squeaking it into a busy professional career. And it looks like there's a ton of stuff to shoot up there where you're located. There is. We're not as well, you know, uh, uh, we don't do as good as you guys for, I'd say, for big game. You know, we don't have, we've got some moose uh, some in some parts of the province. We've got some brown bear, but they're very elusive. The odd coyote and bobcat and so on. But we, we don't have a lot of the big game species and in, in big federal parks that are very accessible and protected like you guys have. But we're very lucky on the bird front. Nova Scotia is well uh, located in a lot of migratory bird pathways, both in the spring and the fall. And in the wintertime here, we've got a good selection. Although it's quieter on the bird front, we've got a great selection of ducks uh, and and winter species. And, sp- and spring and summer, we've got tons of warblers and other types of uh, nesting birds that come here to Nova Scotia. I got a funny story. I've been to Nova Scotia once, and um, I was shooting a project for uh, John Deere, and it was a last-minute thing, as um, a lot of my stuff is always last-minute. So they're like, hey, can you go up there and shoot? They make those big, huge um, logging equipment that, you know, where it comes in and grabs the tree and cuts it down, and they could do selective logging, you know, really good stuff for the environment. So they sent me up there, and I was pretty much a newbie. I didn't know what to do. And I get to Nova Scotia and it's a long flight from Colorado to through New Jersey and then up into Nova Scotia. No clue what I had to prepare for. And I didn't have time to get any permits or anything to travel into Canada. And this was before it was too super uh, locked down with like COVID and stuff. It was probably, I don't know, five or six or seven years ago. So I get there and um, I didn't have a work permit. And so I thought, well, I'll just tell him I'm here to, to shoot fun stuff. But it was like in February or something. And the lady at the, the customs was like, mm, no, you're not here for that. <laughs> and it kind of speaks to what you just said. I mean, there's not a lot of big game. And then this time of year, I mean, I'm showing her pictures on my phone of moose and all this stuff that I do. Because I do do that. But I just didn't know from a business point of view what should I be doing I mean I didn't want to tell him I wasn't doing what I was doing but I didn't know you know it was just that newbie thing and uh they set me in a corner for a couple hours and made me think about it and finally (laughs) let me in and you know it was basically just a matter of getting like a $200 permit which I would have done and then when I got back I told John Deere about the whole thing and they're like oh yeah we forgot to send you the paperwork and I'm like thanks you put me through like I thought I was going to get sent back on the next flight out but fortunately, I was able to uh, to get in there, and they were kind, but they did scare me. For I was the last person in that airport uh, that night, right before they shut it down. Eh? Yeah, they just made me sit there till the very. And he made me read this huge long list of what could happen if I lied to the customs agent, and it was so many months in jail and five hundred thousand dollar fine. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So, needless to say, I don't do that anymore. I I get all the permits and (laughs) you know what i was worried about is i we do a lot of shooting in canada so i was worried about screwing up my future potential i didn't want to do something i wasn't trying to be devious i just didn't know you know so it was a it was a good learning experience and they were kind enough to let me through simone you uh i mean primarily 
at least before your retirement, the, the posts that I saw of yours and, and let me backtrack for just a second. I've been a fan for a long time. Your bird photography is phenomenal and, and, uh, the representation of the species that you have available there, you've done a great job of, of getting some, not only representative images, but some artistic ones as well. But what you've been doing recently is a lot of astrophotography mixed in with that and not just you know what you see down here typically when you talk to an astrophotographer is the milky way with just a different foreground uh, what you've been doing is kind of some deep space imaging if i'm not mistaken it is interestingly enough that's the my first interest in photography was about 15 years ago i said i had a telescope and a mount and i thought and I had a, 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 a home family pics camera, and I thought, I'd like to mm -hmm. throw that in the back of that and see if I can get, get a photo. So I actually made the arrangements to, to take a few photos, but I didn't have the right scope for it. I had a 1,000 millimeter F9 scope, which is kind of pretty slow for astrophotography and, and, mm -hmm. uh, and so on. So I ended up letting it go and saying to myself, maybe someday the technology will exist to make it a lot easier. And it, and it really has. Uh, I've got uh, a, 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 a electronic mount that tracks the rotation of the Earth. I throw a telescope on it, uh, and I've got a little Raspberry Pi device that I put on it, and through a tablet, I can get it to point to any object in the sky. I hook up my camera to it. I have a dedicated astrophotography camera, which is similar has a similar sensor to your, the cameras that we use for our wildlife photography, but it has cooling. And it has some of the filters in our, we have filters uh, to get the white balance right that actually filters out some of the light that you want from deep space object like hydrogen al the, at the wavelength of hydrogen alpha. So that filter is removed. And so through this Raspberry Pi device, it finds my object. I program it to take photos. It tracks the movement of the earth. So it's made it, and digital photography has just made astrophotography so much more, so much easier and so much more accessible. You have a really good video on uh, Instagram that shows kind of what you explained there. And I was watching that yesterday. And I'm like, you, and you did mention, look at all these cables and all the stuff. And you have a cable going here and then you run in the Raspberry Pi and then you got a cable going back over here. And then you got your little spotting scope and that had cables running too. I mean, I'm like, holy moly. It's, you just got to have your stuff together when you're getting set up, right? Astrophotographers actually have separate conversations around cable management. Because <laughs> so, you can buy mounts that have, cape, you can run the cabling through the mount and these types of things. And how hard was it to learn like the Raspberry? Did you build your own Raspberry Pi? I mean, I'm kind of familiar with that, but I, I know. For 400 bucks, I bought an off-the-shelf device with all the software in it, ready to go, plug and play. So uh, you can buy your own Raspberry Pi device and load in your own Windows or your own software Linux and, and run your own software. But I buy it from a company who has proprietary software on it that also is the same company that makes my cameras uh, and some of my peripheral devices. Uh, and the whole thing runs together seamlessly. And so you just operate it with a pad, uh, iPad or a Samsung or whatever it is. Exactly. I bring an iPad, which is way easier than bringing a whole laptop into the field where you need a couple extra cables. You already got enough cables, right? Uh, so uh, not bringing, having to bring the laptop and some extra you know, batteries and, and, and power and cables just made it a whole lot easier to get out there.
So from from start to finish, how long did it take you to build that system? Uh, as far as like doing the research, figuring out what you wanted, that kind of stuff. For the latest setup, I've got a couple of years of of figuring it all out. Astrophotography is unfortunately terribly, terribly complicated, and there's about a hundred steps to get a good photo. And if you mess up step step seventeen, <laughs> all the other steps are of to no avail. <laughs> so you know you've got to be your polar alignment to the north celestial pole has to be almost perfect because the Earth's spinning at you know twenty seven thousand miles per hour I think at the equator, and uh, yet you're trying to take five and ten minute expo long exposures. Of these objects while while the world is spinning away so it takes a lot of precision and uh and so on and it, it takes some some processing skill afterwards as well to pull out the data and get a, a pretty photo out of it you kind of glossed over in the beginning of that description the uh, active cooling and the importance of that just for for everyone listening you can correct me if i'm mistaken but the sensor develops heat and the heat is what can develop noise. So when you're taking a 10 minute exposure, if you're not cooling that sensor, you're going to have excess noise to the point where, you know, you're not going to be able to get a printable image. And is that active cooling part of your, the Raspberry device, or is it just part of your camera body? It's part of the camera body, but control through the Raspberry Pi device. Yeah. So you're hundred percent right. Uh, the, the thermal energy that builds up is really bad for noise. So that's why, for example, your regular digital camera that you and I would use mm -hmm. is actually pretty good in the wintertime. You can, you can put the cameras we use for wildlife photography in the back of a telescope. And take, if you've got a tracking mount and so on, and take some really, really good photos, especially in the wintertime. But the middle of summer, when it gets really hot, those long exposures will, will get pretty noisy. Yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at. The use of the the use of the uh, regular DSLR basically. And I'm kind of wondering with, you know, the recent release of the Canon R5C with that active cooling fan, if that will make it, you know, a better astrophotography body than the regular R5. Probably would. It's a pretty dedicated tool, but it probably would do a bit of a, of a better job. The, but the problem with the uh, R cameras one of the main problems is that shooting objects that have natural colors like the Andromeda Galaxy or the Orion Nebula is actually pretty easy, but a lot of the prettier objects in the sky uh, radiate uh, color at a specific wavelength, the wavelength of hydrogen alpha, and most of our terrestrial cameras have filters in them that mm -hmm. cut that good light out. So you you'd have to take, it cuts out like 80 or 90% of that, that good light. So a lot of these beautiful red nebulas that we want to photograph in astrophotography, we'd have to shoot 10 times longer with our terrestrial cameras to get the same level of exposure. Gotcha. And that's, yeah. Is that just the low so pass it's both filter? the cooling and it's, it's a filter. I think it has to do with the white balance of your camera. Okay. Uh, it's, it's cutting out the reds at, on the infrared end of the spectrum. There's a filter mm -hmm. there. And it, without that filter, it makes white balance on your camera pretty difficult. But with the filter, uh, it's really cutting out a, a lot of the really good light. There's still some objects out there um, that, that we call full color spec, full spectrum color objects that, that have blues and, mm -hmm. and oranges and so on. You can shoot those. But a lot of the prettier ones are ones with this hydrogen alpha wavelength, which is the, a beautiful red 
that uh, our, our terrestrial cameras will cut out. So you had said earlier that it requires a special post-processing too. Is that a special software that you're using or do you use what we all use normally for all the other stuff? Both. You could get, you could get through and do a decent job in Photoshop uh, using levels and curves. The thing is, the, most of the information you're collecting for deep space objects, if you think of a traditional histogram, it's way on the left. It's dark and it's deep because these things are very, very uh, dim objects. You shoot them for 10 minutes and your histogram is still way, way, way on the left. So you have to stretch that histogram and get all that information from those darks out into the middle of your histogram. And uh, you can do that in Photoshop, but there's dedicated astrophotography processing programs that'll simplify the process as well. So I use a dedicated program to do the basic processing and then Photoshop, I make it look pretty at the end. I adjust the colors, I adjust the, you know, the contrast and these types of things. I have a couple more techie questions, but I really want to get into some of the content stuff. As far as the sensor, you said that is a dedicated sensor on that camera that you have that's, that's made for this. What megapixel is that and how big can you take your images? Yeah, my... Uh, sensor on my camera, uh, astrophotography tends to use smaller sensors. So uh, my sensor is 19 millimeters by 13 millimeters. That's quite small. That's a micro four thirds, I think. Uh, and that's traditionally been the case. Telescopes tend to make very small image circles. Telescopes that make uh, an image circle at the back big enough to full fit a full frame sensor are very, very expensive. You know, Five thousand bucks and up. Of course, we're used to that type of number, but you know, most people don't want to spend seven or eight thousand dollars on a telescope. They'd like to try to find something that they can uh, they can use on uh, 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 for 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 a reasonable price. So um, I'm, uh, but I can probably. I haven't tried to print these super large, but I could probably get by with a a sixteen by twenty. Mm -hmm. And, and it'll probably, uh, it'll probably be fine. But now companies are starting to make even more accessible full frame cameras and you can buy, you know, five or 6,000 Canadian will, you know, four or 5,000 us and buy you a full frame, uh, astro camera, which until recently wasn't the case. You, you'd have to spend 10 and $15,000 and buy university grade products rather than consumer products. So, um, Tell, uh, for astrophotography, for, for years, they were using CCDs and not CMOS because mm -hmm. the noise profile of CCDs is better than CMOS. But now CMOS is, is making a comeback because they're being produced in scale. They're being used for security cameras. The companies are making tons of these things. The costs are really coming down and the performance is going up. So CMOS is catching up to CCD. If you went to a university or professional, uh, you know, astrophotography lab they're using ccds still but they're paying you know fifteen hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars uh, for those types of things but you can buy that the, the camera i'm buying uh, using right now sorry uh, is a two thousand dollar camera and uh it does a pretty good job so how portable is this system is this something that i mean obviously you're taking it out on location around home but is this something you could pack up and say hey i'm gonna go to Alaska, or I'm going to go to Churchill or wherever you can do, say, Northern Lights. with. Yeah, Alaska's getting out there in terms of my telescope mount comes in two pieces. You know, one's 30 pounds, the other one's 40 pounds. 
the cam the telescope is very hard to pack because you'd have to unmantle it all and put it all together with all those wires you, you looked at <laughs> to travel with it. So uh, I'd say it's not too difficult to travel an hour out of town to get some dark skies, which is what you want to do uh, a lot of the time. And I'll, I'll put it in three or four pieces and put it in the back of my uh, my vehicle and drive out. So it, it'll take me, uh, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to pack in my vehicle and and uh, set it up at the site. you got to unpack it and plug all the wires in. It takes maybe a half hour to get it ready. And then you shoot for as amount long you want to shoot, and then it takes you 15, 20 minutes to pack it up. And is it fairly delicate, or is this something that's fairly hardy? Fairly delicate, I would say. The mount itself is pretty it's pretty sturdy. But the telescope optics themselves are fairly delicate, and that I wouldn't want to go down a too rough, a, a jiggly road, because the optics have all been aligned and what we call collimated, uh, whereas they can move, and then you need to recollimate the alignment of the lenses and so on, which can be a real pain. That's what I was wondering about uh, light pollution and how it affects you know, that deep space, it, it probably doesn't affect it as much as say your Milky Way shot, but you do, you said you do need to get out of town. Yeah. It depends if you shoot in color, then if you shoot in a full color, like our cameras, then the light mm -hmm. pollution is going to wash out your image quite a bit because th these objects are so dim often. So mm -hmm. when there's a bit of a light pollution, it washes it out. But there's, a, there's another style of photography. If you've heard of the, the Hubble Space Telescope and seen some of those beautiful images, mm -hmm. those are actually false color images shot through filters. So uh, shot through a mono camera, actually. The Hubble Space Telescope has a mono camera with color filters in front of it to make up a color image. And what you do is you put in either red, green, and blue filters behind it for a regular color image, or you put mm -hmm. in filters that filter out specific wavelengths like hydrogen alpha, oxygen three and sulfur two, and you put those instead of red, green, blue, like in Photoshop, in the, in the, the color layers, and mm -hmm. it gives you a false color image. But those, those filters with the, the specific band passes are very good at blocking all the other light out. So you can actually shoot that from Times Square, New York, and get a really good image, which is something that's really new the last five years, the, the, the manufacturing of these filters has gone through the roof in terms of their quality, making astrophotography accessible for people who live in the city for the first time in a long time. That would be the only reason I would ever go to Times Square, New York, is if I had a chance to <laughs> take a deep space photograph, but I have no desire otherwise. Yeah, these mon actually, the cameras we use, you get into cameras when you shoot astrophotography. The cameras we use for wildlife photography actually are black and white cameras with a Bayer filter in front of the sensor with red, green, and blue uh, lenses that filter only allow certain color of those color types and, and then creates a color image uh, based on the amount of data they collect every time they, it goes through a red, green, or blue uh, filter. It's called a Bayer matrix. That's amazing. So I'm sure more tech stuff will come up as we go, but to get onto the content, how I was reading some of your Instagram descriptions and you're like, well, this one has a really cool name and this one is nondescript. It's N05727, whatever. How do you figure out what you want to shoot? I mean, there's, it's got to be unlimited, right? So when you go out, how do you determine, oh, I'm going to, this is what I want. I want this. Uh, there, there tends to be a number of very popular things to shoot just because they're, they're large objects 
they're easily findable, uh, and they're pretty. So there's kind of, it's not hard to find a top 10. And of course, every season it changes, right? What's available right. in the sky in spring, fall, winter, summer changes. So, but if, if you're in wintertime and you do a search for the top 10 astrophotography targets, you'll get, you'll get a list that people are used to seeing. The Orion Nebula, the Horsehead Nebula, the uh, Pleiades, which is the Seven Sisters, uh, or the Andromeda Galaxy. You know, the, there's kind of the obvious ones. So you you start with those usually. You start with the easier because those objects are are also brighter and easier to capture. Then you start getting into the small ones, the dim ones, the hard to find ones, and then you start. So after you've done the easy ones, you start tackling the new ones, but after a few years, your skill improves. You go back to the easy ones and try to get a better photo of the mm -hmm. of the easy one as well. So you keep trying to kind of challenge yourself to not just find new objects, but take better photos of the previous object. So I'll take a photo of something now and compare it to two years ago. And I was proud of my photo two years ago. I thought it was pretty good. And I look at it now and say, oh, boy, <laughs> what, what was I doing? Right. And... Um, one of the big issues for us as well is focal length. You can't zoom with your feet in space. So, you know, when, when you're too right. close, you've got a 500 millimeter lens and you're looking at a moose and he's too close, you back up. Or if he's too far away, you move forward. In astrophotography, you can't really do that. So people end up, you know, people who really get into the, into the hobby will end up with a, with a long focal length scope and a short focal length scope to try to be able to get different objects. Because if the object's too small, and you don't have a lot enough focal length, you'll never fill the frame with it. So, and uh, you can use Barlow's, which is astrophotography talk for extenders, but they don't work super well. You losing any light in astrophotography is a problem. You want fast setups because a lot of the beautiful astrophotos you see are 10 and 20 hours worth of exposures. And what you do is you take multiple exposures, you know, two, three, five, 10 minutes, and then you stack them digitally. So there's software that's been developed that's free, actually. You stack an image together, and the more images you stack, the better resolution you get, and it averages out the noise. So you get better and better quality. So to get really high-quality astrophotos, you actually take hours and hours and hours of exposure, and you add them up together digitally to make a really high-resolution and low-noise photo. So I've talked about it on the podcast before. I'll be out you know, as wildlife and nature people, we're always out early and late, right? So on the early situations, when I used to just leave leave my house at 3 a.m. to be somewhere up in the mountains to for sunrise, you know, you're getting up pretty early. And by the time sunrise happens and then you pass a little bit of time and it's like 10 o'clock in the morning, I oftentimes will lay down and take a nap out in the woods, right? And then while I'm doing that, you're looking up in the sky and you let your mind go and you're like, what's out there? And you know, it, there's no end. And it just, all these questions. And I have to stop thinking about it just cause I, there's no answer. Right. I'm sure you have those kind of experiences when you're looking at some of this stuff. It's just so intriguing to look at your images on Instagram, but looking at any space images, what conjures, what thoughts do you have in your mind when you start doing this stuff and you see such a detail that normal people, you know, uh, normal photographers don't see? Mostly it's around the fact that how big the universe must be. I mean, I'll photograph an object and when I'm trying to describe it, I'll look in some written text about descriptions of it. And it'll show it's 25,000 light years across. 
the thing I put on the screen, it takes you 25,000 years at the speed of light to, uh, to cross it. It just makes you realize how big it is out there and how, how small we are. Um, but, but space is empty. Space is big and mostly empty. So you realize what rich biodiversity we have on our planet compared to 99.99999. I could go on for a long time of what space is. Space is, is pretty empty. So we're lucky to live uh, at a place where we've got such vibrancy and biodiversity. And we're lucky that we can see these, this big empty space and put some structures some of the, and take photos of some of these structures is, is pretty neat for sure. There's got to be other Earths out there too, right? Well, I'll, I'll give you a stat. Uh, there's 100 billion galaxies out there, and each galaxy has 100 billion stars on it. So mathematically, if there was only life on, in one out of every 100 billion stars, there'd still be 100 billion forms of light. A life, sorry. So you know what I mean? It's 100 billion times 100 billion. So you, you could say there's life out of one in every million trillion stars and there'd still be millions. So yeah, it's, it's pretty big out there. And the numbers are just too, even I look in awe at these comparisons of what the biggest stars in the world are compared to the oh, stars right. that we have. Our star, our star is like it's tiny, tiny yeah. compared to, yeah, exactly. That's why I have to stop thinking about it. Yeah, it'll blow. I Boom. can't, yeah. It's like, I want to explode. I'm just, I'm done. I got to go to sleep. I got to go back to what you said about, you know, how many light years away this image is. So you're, you're basically taking <laughs> that in and of itself is mind blowing. You're taking an image that is what? 25,000 light years, not just light years, years light years yeah. ago. So it's, yeah. It's yeah. You're looking back in time, time right? travel. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're just to put some context though of where these things are, when you see these nebulas that are beautiful blues and greens and all that stuff, those are in our galaxy. They're in the Milky Way. When you see pictures of other galaxies, they're outside our galaxy. So, you know, the photos you see, you can divide into two camps. There's galaxy photos, which are galaxies outside ours. Of the Andromeda is our nearest large neighbor, by the way. And um uh, which, by the way, is is pretty big in the sky. You can actually see it naked eye as a little fuzzy patch. And it's almost this big. Like, I'm putting my fingers. It's almost <laughs> this big in the sky. Uh, it's hard to believe. So for it's our way, audio listeners, you're, you're what? A couple inches? <laughs> Sorry, a couple inches. Whereas the moon... This is a this is a this is a something you, you can win a bet with your friends, by the way. <laughs> okay. if, you, if you bet your friends, how big is the moon at your fingertips of your arm? Is it as big as an apple? Is it as big as a quarter? Or is it big as a Tylenol pill? And you bet you bet that with your friends, you'll make money. Because a small proportion of people will get it right that it's only as big as a Tylenol pill. If you hold a Tylenol pill at your fingertips, it'll cover the moon. The moon's actually very, very small in the sky. So are there things that you're photographing that don't exist anymore? Possibly. Um, but... 25,000 years is is not long in, in right. yeah in astro but there's some stars certainly that I've photographed that are, aren't there anymore they've supernova in the in the you know in the 100,000 years 
since the light of my photo showed up, I'm sure there's some out there. And some people with Earth, with, with backyard setups like mine, will take a photo of a galaxy, find out there was a supernova, and then compare it to an old photo. If you blink the two photos, blink, 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 you'll notice one star come and go. Hmm. Yeah. For years, it was a, it was a, a amateur astrophotography challenge to try to find supernovas in your, in your backyard using home setups. But now there's automated professional telescopes that do this and, and shoot millions of stars per night. So that it's all automated now. It's pretty hard to find, to beat those systems, to find your own Nova, the supernova these days. Do you ever go out and search or do you always have a target? Like when you go out, do you ever like, you, maybe you have a target, but then you also are like accidentally run across something that you, this you is can, really cool. You can, but the, the better, more effective technique is to, to plan. And there are astrophotography planning tools that will show you the highlights of the night. There's websites that'll show you the, the, the highlights of the night uh, and show you when it rises above the horizon and when it sets again and, and so on. So you can plan out your night. You can actually do searches. Uh, there's one a website called Telescopius that I use that's very, very good. And it'll give me the top 10 objects to shoot that are coming up between a certain hour and setting on the horizon between a certain hour. And then it gives you your short list of what's available and then you, and shows you example photos of what it looks like. So it, you usually go up with a plan, but then sometimes you'll say, oh, that thing's right next to whatever, and I'll shoot that instead. And it depends mm -hmm. how much time you have. Uh, I'm lucky. I, I've got a unique telescope. It's a 400 millimeter F2. Point, uh, F2. So in astro speak, that's super fast because telescopes, interestingly enough, they're very similar to to a lenses that we use, most telescopes are f5, 6, 7, 8, 9. And trying to take these long exposures at f9 versus f2, uh, the exposure difference is, is, is you know, uh, uh, huge. In terms of at f2, I'll take an object in 5 to 10% of the time than, a, than an f7 scope. So I, I, in terms of how many hours or minutes of exposures, I can take 30 minutes of exposures with my telescope at an object and get a decent photo. Some telescopes need five to 10 hours of exposure on an object to get a reasonable resolution to get the noise down. Because they're shooting obviously, at 6, F7. Obviously, you can only do that with the tracker. Yeah, big time you need. And, and the longer yeah. you want to shoot, the more accurate tracker. And the more focal length you use, it gets harder as well. So if you want to shoot a 2,000, if you have a telescope with a 2,000 millimeter focal length, you're going to need a, a mount to track that tracks very, very accurately. Because at 2,000 millimeters, it doesn't take much for your object to start moving mm -hmm. around the frame. And it's got to be, it's got to stay pretty still in the frame. And so when we're talking about, you know, a 400 millimeter, you, it's not like you can take your 400 millimeter F2.8 Canon or Sony or Nikon out and do the same thing the physics do, of the telescope do, are a little bit different correct they are but that will work i started my astrophotography in the last five years taking my 500 f4 and putting mm -hmm. it on a telescope mount with my dslr on the back and i got some actually pretty good photos uh but those 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 lenses as good as they are they're not designed for astrophotography for example the shutter the uh the aperture blades that are in mm -hmm. the 
camera, they're great for daytime photography, but in nighttime photography, they create these huge star spikes. Uh, there's internal reflections that you get these huge star spikes. Some people find them pretty, others don't. So for example, these telescopes have no aperture, variable aperture, but, but there's also nothing to, to, there's lots of baffles and the, any stray light is really well controlled. Because when you take 10 minute exposure, if there's any stray light going around there, you're gonna get these big blinding flashes in your, in your, in your photos that'll ruin your photos. But mm -hmm. you can take, what, I've got a, a 135 millimeter Rokinon F2 lens, camera lens, and I put that on my Astro, with an adapter on my astrophotography camera, and it takes very, very good wide field astrophotos. So you, so in terms of if someone wants to get into astrophotography, definitely start with what you have. If you happen to have a full frame camera, it's a bonus because the, the ISO performance is better. But if you've got a camera and you've got a lens, a wide angle lens, you know, start taking photos of the Milky Way. If you want to get the, the, the progression past the Milky Way is to get one of these star trackers. For 500 bucks, you get a tracker they put on top of your tripod and it'll track well enough for a wide angle lens. It won't track a 500 millimeter lens accurately, but if you got a 30, you got a 20 millimeter wide angle, you know, F2 lens, put that on your camera and on a tracker and you can get some beautiful images of the Milky Way. And all of those trackers will handle that 135 millimeter Rokinon lens, which only costs like 600 bucks. It's a great place to start. And then mm -hmm. once you're hooked on that, if you decide you want to get a real big beefy tripod to put a big telescope or a big 500 millimeter lens, you can do that as the next step. Now, there's both pros and cons to this. This is a double-edged sword. You can start with as little as you want and keep adding as much as you want. The problem is, I don't want to call it a money pit, but there is no limit to how much equipment you can buy. For example, if you're into wildlife photography, if we go out and buy a 500 millimeter F4, this is not for video. This would be on the photo side. You've got, you know, if you've got a five or 600 millimeter F4, you've got the best lens you can get. You can't buy any more gear to improve your photography. You just got to go out there and take photos. With astrophotos, astrophotography, you can keep buying more. There's no limit. You can spend 100 grand, 200 grand, half a million. Like it goes on forever. So it is a dangerous hobby to get into because you're always enticed to buy the next piece of gear that'll improve your photography. Uh, and you can. So it is, you've got to pace yourself very carefully and discipline yourself in terms of, you know, buying more. For the simple setup that you talked about, so wide angle lens and a, a fairly inexpensive tracker, what's the learning curve? If you say, if you purchase that stuff and you get, you go out, is it going to take you a couple of months? Is it going to take you a couple of weeks? I think you can get, uh, you can watch three or four YouTube videos and go out and get a photo on your first or your second night. You might be thwarted on your first night with something, but uh, if you buy a tracker and you have a wide angle lens and you know how to work a camera and exposure times and apertures, you watch a couple of YouTube videos or the read the instruction manual, you can go out and get a photo with a wide angle lens in your first or your second night out. Uh, what, adding focal length makes things incrementally difficult. You double the focal length, you quadruple how hard it is to get a good photo, and if you double it again. So the trick is to start really wide. Rokinon makes a 14 millimeter 2.8 lens for full frame cameras, 
It's a manual focus, but it, for astrophotography, it's mostly manual focus anyway, by the way. Um, that lens is like 400 bucks. You can buy it used on a used site for 250 bucks. And with that, you can start. And the wider you shoot, it's better for Milky Way photos because the Milky Way moves. So you can't take long exposures with the Milky Way. And there's a formula called the rule of 500. 500 divided by your focal length gives you how many seconds you can shoot without the Milky Way smearing in your, in your image. So you got a 50 millimeter lens, you can shoot 10 seconds. 10 millimeter lens, you can shoot 50 seconds. Now, with high resolution cameras, it's more the rule of 400. And if you pixel peep, it's the rule of 300. But the point being, you can only shoot 15 or 20 seconds long before the Milky Way is going to smear in your image. And that is the main challenge in, in, in taking nice Milky Way photos. Ron mentioned earlier, you know, there's a, there's a Milky Way photo, there's a Milky Way and there's a foreground. People will go, you go shoot the Milky Way, it's great. But once you've shot the Milky Way 10 times with nothing in the foreground, you've shot the same image 10 times. After a while, it's, it's going to lose its, its, its thrill. So it's finding something interesting to put in the foreground that's facing the right direction, south. So when I drive roads around now, country roads, I'm looking south. That's where the Milky Way is. I'm looking for an old barn. I'm looking for a tree. I'm looking for a fence line. And I'm looking for there not to be any street lights around or houses around with light pollution. So you're looking to get away from light pollution. You're looking for, for some composition. And the trick is, one of the challenges I mentioned, you shoot 15 or 20 seconds for the Milky Way, but the, the, the land will be pitch black most of the time in a 15 second exposure at ISO, let's say 30, 1600 to 3200. So the, the, the next most advanced trick after shooting it all in one shot is to shoot the, the sky for 15 seconds then refocus on the foreground if, if it's close and shoot that for three or four minutes. And then in Photoshop, put the two halves together. The sky shot quickly and the land shot slow. And that's, 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 that would be your first, you know, first graduation into Milky Way photography would be to learn the skill of shooting the sky and the land separately and putting them together. And I think if you go to your Instagram page and for the listeners, just go, and we'll have a link in the show notes. But you have some awesome examples of, of some of that Milky Way stuff with the wide foreground. And I'm looking at one now with the river and just there's a bunch on there. So that's a good place to just get some ideas about what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, you know, start wide, start with a wide lens and fast lenses are important as well. Light's a precious resource at night. So I shoot a 20 millimeter, a Sigma Art Series 20 millimeter 1.4 lens. A 1.4 lens has four times more light than a 2.8. So if you're shooting ISO 6400 with a 2.8 lens, I'm shooting 1600 with a 1.4. So you want fast lenses. You don't need 1.4, but if you can get a 2.8 or faster, you know, shooting with an F4 lens is, is starts getting pretty hard. And then the, the like the Sigma lens, that's really high quality glass. How does that compare to like the Rokinon as far as glass quality? I, well, the build quality is quite a bit better. Those yeah. Rokinons are pretty good optical quality because there's because they're manual focus. There's no money. There's no money in the autofocus system. There's op, right. there, there's a shell and there's optics, and the optics mm -hmm. are actually quite good for the money. You know, you might need to stop it down, a third of a stop or two thirds of a stop. Sometimes the stars get wonky in the edges with things called coma or astigmatism. Uh, so sometimes you want to stop them down so that stars the stars are usually pinpoint sharp in the middle. Sometimes the cheaper lenses will have the, the uh, your your stars look like little angels, 
got two wings sticking out in the corner. So you stop down the lenses, but the Sigma lens is a top quality lens. Uh, and, and it's really, really fast. So I really enjoy using that one. What's your favorite astrophotography image so far out of everything that you've shot? Do you have a favorite? Cause I was looking on your, if again, you look, on your Instagram and there's, some if, amazing if you look ones. on my Instagram, uh, from, uh, I've got one on there. That was probably one of my favorites. If one of the an Instagram from the fall, uh, where there's a picture of, um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it here, uh, where there's a path going down on the right and there's a lights coming of cars on the left. Yep. I'm looking at it right now. You're right now. Mm -hmm. So that shot there, that's on the skyline trail in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, a popular hiking spot. And uh, I came to that spot in the daytime four years ago and realized it was pointing south. And I thought, I have to come back here at night someday and shoot this shot. So it took like three or four years before things aligned for me to get there. You need no moon. You need clear skies. This is five hour drive from home. So it, it requires an overnight trip. I happen to be there. So um, uh, it, it takes things to align, but there was some low cloud coming in and I thought it was going to ruin my shot. But what it does did, I shot this right after sunset. It captured the leftover glow that's coming off from the right of the frame, which illuminated those low clouds. So uh, that that kind of all lined up for me pretty well. And I was really, really happy with that shot, considering especially. Now, by the way, we heard moose <laughs> on the trail uh, <laughs> rattling their horns, uh, their antlers uh, on the trees uh, while on our walk back. A little bit unnerving because they're known to be a bit aggressive there. <laughs> Well, I think the shot was worth that little yeah. nervingness because it's an. I'm looking at it right now. It's it's, it's yeah, pretty so, cool. So what I had to do there, uh, if you see the lights of the the on the left hand side, you see the cars. I had to shoot a three or four minute exposure for the foreground to get mm -hmm. the long streak of the lights and to properly illuminate the foreground. And then I shot the sky at about 13 seconds. And and another trick people can can use for their sky shots. I shot about a dozen sky shots and I stacked them digitally using a free program called uh, Sequator or Sequator. It's Equator with an S at the beginning. It's free. And what you do, you take a dozen shots, you put them in there and it stacks them digitally for you and, uh, and uh, improves the quality and reduces the noise. It'll actually stack the foreground to, for you as well. So if you recall, the sky's moving, the foreground's not. The sequidor will separate the sky and the land, stack the land, stack the sky that's moving, put the sky back where it should have been, and put the two halves back together, and it's free. So if someone is looking to try some of these more advanced techniques, sequidor is a great place to start. Is that a Mac or a PC program? It's PC only. Uh, there's a Mac equivalent, I think, called Starry Night Stacker that you might have to pay 40 or 50 bucks for or something. Right. Yeah, I get the impression a lot of this stuff is the Raspberry Pi. Isn't that Linux or Linux? Uh, or... This Raspberry Pi device, I don't, it might be. This this one's called an ASI. It's made by a company called ZWO, and the device is called an ASI Air. Okay. Uh, that's the name of the, the device. Most photographers, well, most of the people I know have Mac computers, and so you end up getting into this other stuff, and that kind of scares me a little bit. I used to be fairly versatile with PC, but man, I haven't worked with them for a long time. So it gets a little scary, but it can't be that difficult. Most of the stuff's pretty, 
uh, user friendly nowadays. We'll put we'll put links to all those in the show notes. So if you want to give this a shot, uh, you can you can find it there and be able to go just download it and and see what you can do. It's a great you know. There's that springtime where you can get the full arch of the Milky Way, and typically. I have a friend that's he's world-class astrophotographer, uh, Sean Peterson and Sean would always want me to go out with him, but there is this diverse or this grand divide between wildlife photographers and astrophotographers because the astro guys want to be up all night. Wildlife guys, you know, you, you've got to be up early in the morning. And so we didn't get out and shoot a lot together, but we did, we did get out enough. And, you know, these are all, a lot of the things that you've mentioned are things that he would try to get me to do, but I just couldn't bring myself to stay awake all night. The sweet spot maybe is to go out looking for some owls at sunset True. and then stay around behind and stick and, around. Uh, yeah. and stick around and shoot once it gets dark. Yeah. But there's this time frame in the spring where you don't really have a lot of wildlife images that you can take. You know, it's before things start to migrate. It's before all the breeding seasons start that you've got this full arch of the Milky Way and that 14 millimeter Rokinon that you were talking about. That's that's the money lens. You literally can buy that thing for 200 bucks, 200 to $250. Great place to start. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is that, you know, that time frame to go give yourself or go take the opportunity to get the the astrophotography shot to kind of get the blood flowing in that direction. Just a quick word from our sponsors. The first sponsor that I'm going to include is cold case gear. Uh, it's a Colorado company and they make basically insulated cell phone cases. However, these cases are uh, advantageous to our audience because they can also be used for camera batteries during the cold weather and extend the life of your, smaller batteries they'll fit the larger batteries for the the pro model cameras but you can fit multiple smaller batteries in these cold cases and then put them inside there they are insulated and you can check them out at coldcasegear.com and uh, it, it is a great product to extend the life of your camera batteries during the winter months so another sponsor, which we talk about all the time, and we've got a new deal with these guys. We have uh, Precision Camera. Used camera business is really good right now. And I said, well, maybe there's some sort of promotion we can do with that. And he's like, yeah, as a matter of fact, we're always looking for good used camera equipment. And they do a lot of little events around their Texas area. But I said, you know, Wildland Exposed has a nationwide audience, and maybe there's people out there that want to sell some gear it's super easy to do on their website. You can just go to, uh, I think it's, I looked at it this morning. I uh, used gear, you click on that, and then from there you can get an estimate. So you can list what you have for sale. So whatever camera body, whatever lenses, whatever, whatever. And you have to tell them what kind of condition it is in. And once you do that, it'll tell you what you can expect to get when you submit it to the website. Then what you do is you send your equipment down there and they verify that the way you rated it, the, the quality, the, the shape it was in, was equal to what you said it was on the website. Once all that's done, then they just send you a check in the mail, which is pretty cool. And this promotion for this particular quarter is going to be 
any wild and exposed listener that sends their stuff in and wants to get some cash is going to get 10% more than what they would normally pay. So that's kind of cool. I mean, you, you turn in a camera, let's, you know, we all use these pretty high end bodies, right? So let's say you turned in a one DX and let's, these are just, I have no idea what they pay for it, but let's say they pay a thousand bucks. That's a hundred dollars. That's not too bad. Not too shabby. So the way yeah. you get that is you go into the website and if you look, when you're rating all your equipment, there was one other little section near the bottom that says, tell me more. And when you go to that section, you just type in wild and exposed. So that's the way you're going to capitalize on this sort of, or this particular promotion. Yeah. And it's not tell me more. It says more information. So if you want, if you just type in there wild and exposed, you're going to get an extra 10%, which is pretty awesome. And if you're in the market for new gear, it's a good opportunity to trade it and not have to go through the hassle of selling individual components as well and, and get a little bit more for it. Most of the time you're going to get a little bit more if you sell it on your own, but I never do. I um, always trade my gear in and then just go for and do it exactly what you said. I just apply it towards the next whatever new thing it's out there. Lastly, we have, so in this particular podcast that you are listening to, we, we talked about the opportunity to jump on some of the workshops that we are either promoting for somebody else or some of our own. And we have two bear trips planned for this coming year. There's one spring trip and then there's one fall trip. And it's all Alaska coastal brown bears. That's going to be going to different places just because of the time of year. But we have one spot that opened up in our first trip because that filled up really fast. But we had a, a couple that has a family emergency come up and only one of them is going to be able to go. So we had a second spot or one spot open up on that trip. And then the fall trip, we haven't advertised that much, but there's actually four spots available there. So if you're interested, hit up the show notes for this particular podcast and I'll have a link to the workshops. And once you go to that link, you can click on either one, read about it. And then if you're interested, there's a place to call Dave at AK Adventures and get yourself signed up. He'll tell you all the particulars and what you got to do. And then you can read about what we're going to do and some of the things you might see and then also see and photograph. And then also you'll know what to bring and that sort of thing. Yeah, and we'll, we'll all be staying on a boat. We'll have an opportunity to talk about your gear, help set your gear up, um, talk about adventures in the field, you know, each day after, after the return, Mike is going to be on the boat. And if you are looking to do some video, there's nobody better to, to pick his brain and, uh, and learn a little bit more, kind of deepen your wealth of knowledge while you're on that trip. The first trip is, uh, more spring bears so you're looking at sows and cubs a little bit more than you would be on the second trip and the second trip would be fishing bears so it's a great opportunity to get some quality images spend some good time in the field uh, but also you know just experience alaska in a way that most people don't have the opportunity to get away from society for a few days and that never that never disappoints yeah, and this boat is pretty awesome. It's got everything you could want, plenty of space to 
set up your stuff and the food is really good. The the people that run the boat, the captain and his his crew are super awesome people. And it's just amazing to be able to be out there and the cool thing too is if you go to a place and it's not very good, no problem. You just pull up Move the anchor and the head on to the yep. next spot. So it's it's kind of cool to have that flexibility. And Dave, who runs those tours all year long, he is totally dialed in with that whole area. So if for some reason uh, uh, on the fish running stuff or the, the bears fishing stuff, if, if there aren't fish at this particular river, chances are there might be just down the down the way a bit and he'll know exactly where to go so i expect it to be really really busy the spring trip man there's just so many different things it's pretty unusual to go out that early um because it is fairly early in the schedule but drew had you know everybody knows drew from the podcast drew uh guided this same time last year he had the most fun on this trip than any other trip that he's done in the spring just because of the you know and you know conditions are going to change and years are going to change but they saw wolves they saw bears they had uh sows with cubs they had big males they had all kinds of activity so should be a good one absolutely let's get back to the podcast and you guys are going to look at i've been thinking about this the whole time you're going to look at Simone's. um instagram feed and you're going to wonder why we've spent all this time on deep space astrophotography because he's a phenomenal uh, wildlife photographer as well but this is just you know having you on it's been the first opportunity that we've had to have somebody that's got that kind of expertise and we kind of wanted to take advantage of it i was just going to say the same thing wrong because i'm looking at the instagram feed and just like on the page i have or, or the screen i have up right now it's just tons of bird pictures, which are amazing. Do you, uh, do you have a, is it a time of year thing where you're like, okay, just like Ron said, I'm going to go out and do wildlife now because it's better for wildlife or, I mean, what dictates all that stuff? Uh, it's a, it's a bit of everything I would say. Um, yeah, I don't have a particular schedule or system that says I shoot birds on Monday and <laughs> and Milky Way on Tuesday type of thing. Um, you you know Milky Way and deep sky conditions need need a good bit of, of alignment. You need no moon or you know little moon. You can't shoot with some moon some types. I mentioned that earlier, but you know you're looking for no moon. You're looking for clear skies. So you tend to do astro when the conditions permit. And then, you know, because it's a bit fussier for conditions. Then now it's true for wildlife photography as well. Full bright sun in the midday is no good, uh, and so on. But you, you tend to probably do the astrophotography uh, with a conditions alignment, and then you you do the wildlife stuff outside. Is there a predictor app? You know, like there's an app for Nor uh, Aurora. Is there a predictor app to, app for what you're doing? There are, yeah, there are good apps. Uh, one I've been using lately is called Astrospheric. Uh, and uh, I use that for weather predictions. The best app out there, if if you're really into Milky Way photography, is called Photopills. Uh, pills oh. is, I think, the Dutch word for app or something. Uh, and Photopills. And it's an amazing piece of software. It, it's for predicting... Uh, the location of the Milky Way uh, at any given time and place. And it, it's so sm smart as well. It uses your smartphone's camera. You point your camera at 
a lighthouse, for example, and then it superimposes the Milky Way next to it, and you slide your finger left and right to see which date, time, exact conditions the Milky Way will be exactly where you want it next to the next to the lighthouse. So if I'm driving around and I see a lighthouse that's facing south, I say, that'll be a great Milky Way pick. I jump out, I open my app, and I figure out that in three weeks at 3 a.m., the Milky Way will be right where I want it. And you can go back and that's where it will be. So it's a Milky Way planning, photography planning tool, uh, which is super helpful for, for helping you plan these things out. The reality is these beautiful Milky Way shots you see, they have a fair bit of planning involved. They're, they're, they're very rarely happenstance because what happens is you can't drive down the road and say, oh, that'd be great to put in a Milky Way shot because if it's at night, it's black, it's dark. You can't see that there's an empty barn. So the, the perfect thing to put in a, in a Milky Way photo would be a rustic barn in the middle of a field with no light pollution around it. The problem is when you're driving a, a dark rural road at night, it's pitch black. You can't see that there's a barn there. So you don't happen upon these beautiful compositions for Milky Ways by chance during the nighttime. You have to go scouting in the daytime or you run across them in the daytime and you make a note of when you need to go back at night. The other thing that photo photo pills is a good app for wildlife photography as well. I mean, there is a shot that I've been trying to get for several years now where it's basically a a backlit sage grouse on a, on top of a ridge. The problem is finding the finding the lek that's on top of a ridge that doesn't have yeah. anything behind it. Yeah. But then and when use, will the sun be right behind it? Exactly. Or whatever, you use right? the photo pills app to basically line your blind up with where sunrise is going to take place. And then obviously that's a shot you're going to get before sunrise. So you can use the same app to di to dictate exactly where the sun's going to come up and and help you in those circumstances when you're kind of planning those shots ahead of time in your mind. And I've yeah, got every yeah, other yeah. shot of a sage grouse. That's the only one I don't have. So I'm de yeah. dedicating my spring to that particular shot. There you go. That's great. And, great plan. Yeah. It, it's, you know, for silhouette shots, if you know where animals are, uh, you know, where they typically travel from morning to, you know, where they're going to feed or where they're going to bed. You know, there's a lot of applications for that particular app in wildlife photography, as well as astro and landscape photography. Yeah, it's, exactly. I use I use the same app, for example, to figure out which beach could I go to uh, and see sandpipers on the beach and get the sunrise right behind the sandpiper. And it's got go. the this photo pills has a map integration piece as well, where you can put put a pin on the map and it'll show you exactly where the sun's going to rise, where the sun's going to set and so on and so on. So you can do help you do your planning. Hmm. The other planning tool that's quite important here on next to the ocean, I'd say, Michael, back to your, to your question earlier is uh, understanding winds and tides. So if you're going to be shooting sandpipers and sea ducks and these types of things, you really need to know uh, what the wind direction is going to be. And you need to know what the tides are going to be. The wind is important because sea ducks will bounce in the water facing the wind. If the wind's in your face, then you're shooting the, the, the ducks behind, right? You need the wind at your back to have birds bobbing. The other thing is large birds like uh, geese or ducks and herons take off and land into the wind. 
So mm -hmm. when you're approaching those, now this is different than from, from animals that can smell you. Uh, but uh, for birds, you often want the wind at your back because you want them landing and taking off in your direction. It makes for more, or at worst on the sides, makes, makes for better photos. But also the tides are important. If you're going out to shoot sandpipers, most sandpiper species like to feed off the debris that's left on the beach after a high tide. So the hour and two hours after high tide is the best time to go shoot those sandpipers because at low tide here we have we have a lot of, of mud flats and uh, at low tide here the water can be two kilometers from shore. The water is very shallow. We have a place in Bay of Fundy here the tide's 40 feet. So at low tide the, the water is like three kilometers away. This, these uh, sandpipers could be anywhere on those hundreds of square kilometers of mud flats. But at high tide, they're brought close to shore, number one. And number two, they like eating the debris left right behind. So high tide and the couple hours right after is a good timing for sandpipers, for example. Sea ducks, on the other hand, the lower the tide is, the more they get to access new grounds to, to dive deep and get access to food. So if you're shooting harlequin ducks, low tide is best actually, will bring them in closer to shore where they can dive deeper to get to food that hasn't been foraged yet. When you look through your Instagram feed, you see everything you just talked about. You see all the birds, you see all the tides, you see all, it's amazing. I mean, just the variety of stuff that you're shooting and shooting well, it's, it's spectacular. Well, it may be a point of pride with me a bit that I like to be diverse. I like to shoot a lot of different things. Um, you know, I like shooting warblers, these small little colorful birds that not a lot of other people love shooting them. People like big birds. People like, a lot of photographers like shooting herons and like shooting owls and eagles, big birds. Me, I love the small, you know, kinglets and I love shooting warblers. They're a challenge. They're harder, but I like the diversity in species. I, I, I tend not to, you know, it's just, uh, that's something that I enjoy and I like getting, uh, finding some new birds. Uh, I got my first photo last week of, uh, of a black vulture, which are a very mm. rare, uh, rare bird here in Nova Scotia. So it's always fun to find new species that I've never photographed before and be able to get a good photo. of. No, the, uh, the diversity comment is obvious when, when you go to your, you know, you're not like us out West where once September 15th hits, all you're going to see is elk in our, in our uh, Instagram feed because it's just that's what you focus on but the but diversity they're, they're, that's, they're beautiful I'm, they, I'm envious they are. don't worry I'm, I'm envious <laughs> don't worry they're beautiful and they you know the behavior obviously is a sight to behold and everybody should experience that in their lifetime so it's hard not to focus on that because that's what I'm you know that's what you're drawn to but the diversity in your feed I mean you go everything from harlequins to warblers to mandarins you've got mandarin ducks in your feed which are yeah, that's actually are probably a wild that's probably an escapee actually there, well of course yeah. there's technically very few wild populations of mandarins and uh, mandarin ducks in in north mm -hmm. america most of them are are escapees some of them are permanent escapees and there are a few wild populations that have sprung up from escapees but mm -hmm. it's such a pretty duck i had to at least take its photo Oh, absolutely. They're gorgeous animals. The thing I like about your feed is it's it's not just a portrait. Most of your images have behavior as well, and that just gives so much more information about each animal, right? 
Well, maybe I can talk about my progression in photography, and this can be something that other people can, can look at. You start off in bird photography. First, you're, you're happy to get a bird. Just get a bird. Sharp. Then you're happy to get a bird in focus and sharp. <laughs> then you might drift towards wanting a clean background. So you get a bird on a branch with a clean background, which I call the bird on a stick shot. And to be honest, I got into a rut where for two years I shot bird on a stick. But after a while, the same bird species on another stick is still the same photo over again. And I got into a bit of a rut and I thought to myself, what could I do to improve my game? And I tried something that actually worked, but I didn't know it was going to work. I said, I should start shooting a bit of landscape photography to learn composition, tricks with light, patterns, you know, more complex <clears throat> photography uh, ideas and practices. And I'll see if I can apply some, what I learned to my bird photography. And it actually worked. I went out and I started studying the light and I looking at the direction of the light and I looked for compositions in my photos. So I would say the winning, con and I applied that to my photography. So I would say the thing with my photos now that I tried to do, it's not good enough anymore for me to have just a photo of a bird. It's gotta have, it's gotta be bird plus. It's gotta have a beautiful background or it's gotta have some kind of leading line or pattern in the environment around it. I would say my weakness though is still, I've, I'm in love with the, with, with the clean background. And I told a friend of mine, I told a friend of mine, uh, you know, it's kind of a weakness now, you know, I always have this kind of clean background look and he said something along the lines of, yeah, but you know, Da Vinci had a look too, and it wasn't a problem. You know what I mean? Like that's your that's your your look. People look see my photos and know it's my photo before they see, even see my name. That being said, you know I really look. The other thing I'm looking for, so it's either something compositionally that's interesting or some behavior that's interesting. So I'm a big fan. Keep the shutter button down. Shoot. Just shoot, shoot, shoot. They're free. So it's, I sight. I see a bird, and he's doing something. I just shoot. I just keep the trigger down and I shoot 200, 300, 400 photos of the same bird jumping, doing something, preening, and then I will go back. So if you look at the bird above the pintail there, mm -hmm. there's a pintail and he was preening and I just shot, 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 shot. And then I go home and I delete 95% of my photos. I should delete 99, by the way. I keep 5%, <laughs> which is still too much. Uh, you know, I'll take 2,000 photos, I'll, I'll whittle them down to 30 and then I'll go through the 30 and pick the one or two that I like the best. And so finding the exact, so having that frame rate on my camera is very important. Uh, you know, uh, I, I take lots, like to take lots of frames per second and I get the interesting behavior, a really unique pose. I'm trying to get trick, you know, some light or some composition in the photo at the same time. And I try to put all those ingredients in, together. Uh, and now my new kind of lens, if I post a photo, it's a photo I'd, I wouldn't be ashamed to put on my wall. And, mm -hmm. you know, if it's just a photo of the animal or a bird and it's just, it's, you know, I'm, I'm looking for something a bit more. Uh, but it keeps me challenged. And, uh, and uh, so, so I, I really like that. Well, I think these days you have to have a little bit more and to get noticed. I mean, to, to, to have people really get engaged with your photography it can't just be a portrait these days it's and the tools exist just like you said i mean just keep that button down and 
there's going to be one in there that has, I mean, I was just looking at a waxwing picture that you had with a, a berry of some sort in midair. And, you know, you, the shot you referenced in the beginning with the blackbird was the red winged blackbird with the, the breath coming out. I mean, those kinds mm -hmm. of shots are so, they tell the story so much. And there's so many people that don't get out into nature that have no idea that this, that you can actually go see that kind of stuff yeah. and you and can bring that to them. And that's one of the most rewarding things for me. I get comments from people saying, thank you so much for sharing the nature that I don't get to see. Some people are at home. They can't get out. They are not financially able to go out and about all the time. There's lots of different reasons that people you know, can't get out into nature. They're not mobile. Uh, and uh, giving them a few photos of something they can't see on their own is a highlight for them for their day. And that's really rewarding for me to be able to share a passion for nature and, uh, and photography and having people appreciate it. That, that it feels good. So before we jumped on the podcast or actually started recording, we were talking a little bit about video and not that you don't have enough stuff going on already with <laughs> Astro and wildlife and landscape. And you equipment. were talking about the yeah. equipment and you were talking about kind of delving more into the video parts of things. What's the reason for that? Is it just another challenge or is it just the way the world's working now and videos tends to be the, the choice of, of new media? Maybe a bit of both. I, I, it's not clear to me that video is a, that I'm financially motivated for video. I'm not thinking, you know, I sell prints and I sell calendars and so on. I don't think I'll be, I have no plans of selling video. That, that, that's your business. But I've got the gear that can do it. I've got a great camera that shoots great video. I've got some fast lenses. Um, so, but it's both, it's a, it's a new medium. But I think, I think the first thing you said is what's right. It's, it's something new. I, I enjoy a learning curve. I enjoy the process of, of educating myself about how to do something and figuring out a way to do it. So I've got a great setup for it. And I shot, on the weekend, I shot some bald eagles. I just posted it on my Instagram earlier today, actually, shooting some uh, bald eagles in uh, 4K 120 in some slow motion. And uh, that was tons of fun, but I'm doing it on a gimbal head uh, with my image stabilization on, I'm realizing now. So I'm learning about uh, buying a, looking at buying a fluid head, uh, something I can bring along. Uh, I'll need to look at some neutral density filters probably. And uh, my video editing <laughs> is non-existent, or I can I can stitch a few clips together, and I can fade in the the front and fade out the back, and that's about <laughs> it. So uh, I've got a lot to learn there. But I think I think something that I saw that was the most interesting was uh, there's a guy on YouTube by the name of Yan Wegener. He's from Australia, and he shoots some some birds, and uh, he said something interesting was you know. You know that clean background thing that we're talking about. You know, for photos, there's some fo there's some setups that are good for photography and others that just aren't. He said when it's not good for photography, I switch to video. And sometimes having a bird in the tangles in the branches with a whole bunch of stuff in a way is can still make great video. So there's still something to do out there if the photography is not great. If you've got the gear anyway, and and switching is only maybe putting in a filter and 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 changing it to the video mode. Uh, so I, I tried my hand at it the first time last uh, September. In Nova Scotia here, we have a large sandpiper migration of birds coming from the Arctic heading to South America. And we get, uh, 45 minutes from my house, we get tens of thousands of sandpipers coming through. 
and we have these big like start you know starling murmurations where there's like thousands mm -hmm. of birds we get that with sandpipers and there's two peregrine falcons hunting the few thousand sandpipers so i i tried shooting some video and of course i'm here i am trying to track handheld a peregrine falcon diving at 200 kilometers per hour after a couple thousand sandpipers and of course when the sandpipers see them coming they break they break in every direction and i'm trying to follow them but it was tons of fun actually it was a really fun experience i, I sat there for i say i sat there sat there on a rock shooting handheld for about an hour or an hour and a half straight of a of a peregrine falcon diving after sandpipers over and over and over again like one dive every five minutes for an hour an hour and a half my arm was gone <laughs> but uh it was uh it was it was tons of fun and i realize now you know i've got to go to my 100 to 400 back up a little bit you know get you know for, for video i probably don't want to be shooting in so tight i, I tend to shoot portraits my, my bird photos are often bird portraits and they're shot in tight but you know video for fast action i, I probably want to back up a little bit and get a little bit more bigger picture mm -hmm. of the action and uh, but anyway i i so i've been i've been looking uh michael at your uh, at your tips videos and uh and listening in on some uh some things that i need to think about if uh if i want to start doing some more video yeah i think the most important thing and you you're looking into it already but the video head is obviously the most important and it's another thing that you want to spend a, the more money you can spend the better and the heavier the better and everybody's always thinking opposite of that right because you last thing you want to do is carry this big heavy but i'll tell you what the results will show that that heavy more expensive tripod head is what you want to do uh, astrophotography is the same way by the way the 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 three most important things in astrophotography are the mount, the mount, and the mount. <laughs> uh, if you ha if you you can buy a ten thousand dollar telescope, but if you put it on a on a five hundred dollar mount, you're going to get crappy results. It's going to you know you got to get a solid mount. Same thing. So same thing with the video head. Yeah. Yep. Well, and I think you talking about that many birds in the air and the, just the way they separate and there's really I mean you can show you can shoot a still image and tell part of that story. But to see it on video, that's where you really start picking up on that, the number of birds. You know, if there's, what'd you say, 10,000 birds flying? Yeah. I mean, that's incredible, right? We, but, but, but that's when I really, back to your question, why are you doing video? When I shot some slow motion video of those thousands of birds moving around, that's when I realized video is the right, better medium for some things. It's the movement. It's the coordinated movement of the sandpipers. That's the story. That's, mm -hmm. that's the unique thing there. It's not just a flock of birds going by. It's a flock of birds doing a coordinated movement to get away from a predator. That's what's amazing. And you need video to capture that. So uh, if I do get nice video, I'm still not sure what I'm going to do with it. But anyway. Yeah. The other thing, piece of that story is you're talking about the fastest animal on the planet as far as the predator that you had in that <laughs> scenario, the peregrine falcon. And there's no way to, if you take a still image at, 3,500th of a second, you're getting a good image of a peregrine falcon, but there's no way to tell the story of just how fast they are without seeing that fleeting glimpse. You're at 100, you know, 120 frames a second, slow motion, and it's still going across the frame at, you know, 200 kilometers an hour, literally, when they're in a dive. So being slow motion and still having them move across the frame that fast tells a story of just how fast that that bird is and how impressive that 
predator is. And yeah, you and know, looking singing at that, songbirds. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Singing songbirds in the spring. You know, Everybody. taking a, I can take a photo of a bird with a mouth open that you know he's singing, but you can't hear the song. So mm -hmm. the video, and of course we know, you know, Michael, I've been, you know, looking at your tips, and I know you guys know this in spades. Uh, the uh, the audio is is mm -hmm. so important as well. So, you know, looking at my mic options, I've got a little, I got a little, you know, mic you put on on the hot shoe of your camera there, but I'm looking at my audio options as well because I'd love to shoot. I'd love to shoot some singing warblers in the spring uh, and really capture, you know, the beautiful songs and the, the, the forest sounds and so on as well. If you didn't go back and listen to that, if you, if you didn't do it already, go back and listen to uh, Stan Tequila's podcast. He does a lot of audio work and, and there's a lot of good tips in there as far as which microphone, what type of microphone to use you know, while you're filming. And then if you have a standalone where you're just trying to get the audio separate from the video and then marry the two together. Yeah. You might check that one out. You know, you were saying, I don't, you're not sure what you're going to do with that video, but I mean, it's just the same thing as the comments that you get from people that say, thanks for just showing me this. It just brings it up another level. And then everywhere I go these days, I mean, whether it's on the phone on Instagram video or you're in an airport and you're watching a monitor, I mean, everything is video these days. So there's so many uses. And I think it just gives you that much more information to share your experiences. And, uh, you know, with what you do and your ability to take hold of something, whether it's Astro or wildlife or you're going to love it. You're just going to have a blast because it's that challenge. It's that new thing to just, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get really good at this. So I think you'll kill it once you, dive into it deeper it's it's bound to be a good compliment to the photography at a minimum in terms of you know there's got to be a way for these pieces to be complementary to each other and mm -hmm. uh at a minimum if i'm out taking photos and i see something and the photo is not great but the video opportunity is then like you do the switch and it gives you something else to come home with because sometimes some days you come as you know some days you come home with nothing <laughs> right wow. Uh, it's it'd be nice to come home with a little something some on those days when you come home with nothing and to your point i i mean these cameras can do it now when i first started video i don't even know how many years ago i was carrying a still setup and a video setup and that was just the only way to do it but as these cameras have progressed and you can you still got to make some changes and i think there's a mindset too to shooting them both i mean some days are just locked on that still mode and that just works but other days you're locked on the video. And some days I can switch back and forth and do okay, but I find if I just lock in on a certain mode. I tried to do both. Uh, last year I, I tried to do photographing the peregrine falcon diving after the sandpipers and video, shooting video of the sandpipers. And I brought, I brought two camera bodies and I brought 100 to 400 lens for some video and the 500. And it doesn't matter what lens and camera body I had up, it's the other one <laughs> that would have been the best. So Confucius had a saying, he who chases two rabbits catches neither. <laughs> so I think that's the thing for us uh, when it comes to shooting, trying to get video and photography. We're probably going to get neither. So you might have to just pick one and excel at one and not worry about the other. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I've got to that point where it's like this is a video day. And no matter how much I want to shoot a still of this, I'm just going to keep shooting video. Yeah, well, if you're carrying that red camera and the, that big, 50 to a thousand zoom lens and all that, uh, 
yeah, you've got enough gear as it is. Yeah, and the big selling point originally with the Red was, oh, yeah, you can shoot stills, high-resolution stills, and video. Yeah, you can, but it's the same as what we deal with the DSLRs now. It's a different mindset. You've still got to shoot a fast shutter speed. You still have yeah, to you don't have the right frame rate. Yeah, so it's it's mm-hmm. you still, no matter what, you just, for me anyway, I'm sure there's people out there that can just switch back and forth and probably do really well at it, but I find I'm way better at focusing on one thing at a time. Wow, I've learned a lot. The Astro stuff is just, I've never really had, I love watching the images. And like you said, I'll, I'll sit in the woods and think about that stuff every now and then and I get lost. But actually being able to talk to you, and I always thought of it as something that was, learning curve was huge. But if you can go out with the basic setup and get a decent shot after one or two times, then that's something to start playing with. I think if you're in Alaska in the summertime and there's a big mountain in front of you with a lake and you've got a full frame camera and you've got a wide angle lens, put it on a tripod, put this, put this, put, put the ISO on 3200, bring a shutter release and take a 30 second exposure. And then when you put it into Lightroom or, or Photoshop, add a bit of contrast raise the exposure a little bit, put some noise reduction on it, and you'll have, you'll have something. You'll have something. And that's, that's a place to start. You, you know, raise the shadows of the mountain that's gonna, probably going to be a bit on the dark side, and it might be a bit noisy in, in the foreground if it was dark. You shot at 3200 and it was dark and you raised it two or three stops, it's, it's going to be a bit noisy or whatever. Or, but start there, and that's all you need uh, to start. Now, the big thing is focusing. you got to put live view... You know, I say just go and do it. You got to focus on a star or a, a bright planet or something in the moon, and put your camera in manual focus. Put live view on the back LCD and hit the zoom button to zoom up as much as you can on a star and manually focus on a star, and then don't touch the focus again. Other than that, it's just a shutter release and some of the exposure numbers I gave you. That's a really good point too. Uh, the first time mm-hmm. I ever shot the Aurora, I the focus. I'm like, well, you just put it on infinity and call it good. Most lenses, the infinity is just not, not close enough. No. Now you, what you can do though, at daytime, focus to infinity, focus on something at, in the daytime, like something that's a mountain that's far away and just make look visually of where the, the point, where the focus point is compared to where the infinity is. Mm-hmm. And if it's a little bit left of it or a little bit right of it, then at night you can bring it back to that spot and you'll be you know close, close enough to, close. to play around play close enough to play around with. Right. If you're if you want to be a bit more technical, put it on live view, magnify on a bright star or Venus or something like that at the back screen and manually focus tilt as tight as you want and then don't, don't touch it again. I might do that. You know, get one of those silver Sharpie markers and you, just you, mark if, that you on can, your lens. Some, right? people, some people do that. Some people do that. And it's it's a good place to start. Now, some temperature variances will change where your infinity focus may be. If it's really caught, really hold, it might change, but you can learn that. You can learn that as you go. I'm going to learn that next week in the Arctic. <laughs> now, the Milky Way is not very visible in the wintertime. You, you will see the Milky Way, but the best, part, the best part, the core of the Milky Way, is hidden under the horizon. But you can still get something. The other thing is shoot star trails. Uh, put a tick. Mm-hmm point at the North Star or something, put a mountain or a tree in the foreground, 
put your camera on ISO, you know, 400, low ISO, bring a shutter release, point it at something, focus it like I said, and put the shutter on and leave it on. Go do something for 40 minutes and come back and you'll get a Star Trails photo. So 40 minutes, will that get you a full... It'll give you enough movement in each of the stars so that when all the stars are put together, it looks like a full circular wheel. Okay, so 40 minutes will do that. 40 minutes will do that, yeah. Even 20 minutes or something will do that, but uh, 40 would be better. And 400 ISO is a good start. Yeah, you can go to low ISO for that because, you know, you, you can go higher if you want, 800 or 1600, but, you know, in, in, in post-processing, you can just raise the light a bit and it'll make those streaks a bit brighter. So you're going to do 400 ISO and then you're going to be as wide open as the lens will be? Yeah, or stop the lens down just a wee bit. I say 400. I've, you know, I've got a 1.4 lens. So it's it but if you've got a 2.8 lens or something, you might want to go, you know, 800, 1600. Uh, so if you had a 2.8, let's say you had a 2.8, set it at 800 ISO, then would you shoot it at 3.5 for 40 minutes? Yeah. And if you shoot it at 3.5, if you stopped it down, you might want your ISO a little bit higher again, maybe 1600 or something. Yeah. So just put it on a sturdy tripod, point it at something. Put something in the foreground, not just star trails, like put a water tower or a big tree or a mountain, you know, have something in the in the photo. And then you can have, and you don't even need to point at the North Star. If you point at the North Star, everything will be moving around a central point in your photo. But if you point west or east, you'll still get streaks. They just won't be in a circular pattern around a point. And you don't need the, the streaks to be in a circular pattern around your photo. They can be going crossways across your photo and they'll still be very attractive. You can even you can even find an interesting composition that's moving like this in your photo and set it up so that the streaks match the composition. It'll make a more interesting photo. I have one last question, and I was thinking about it earlier, and then we got on to other things, but I'm kind of curious. Is it possible to photograph, like, the space station? I have a photo He's got it on in his my feet. Instagram from a few <laughs> months ago of, of – uh, yeah, actually, I have a video – if you look at the video section of my feed, I actually made a little time, uh, a, a little movie. I shot the International Space Station crossing the sun. Okay, so I saw a picture earlier with this. Okay, here it is, International. So, okay, I'll watch it later. But how that with my 500 f4? Okay, and a two-time teleconverter on a tripod, and there's a website. I forget what it's called that gives you the exact point in time where there will be transits of the sun and the moon of the International Space Station. So it told me that at this certain location, uh, there, the, the International Space Station would cross the sun at 2.32 and 16 seconds on this place on the map. So I found a, I found a, a fire station with an empty parking lot at that strip location, like it's a strip on the map, and uh, and what I did was I I got a super accurate app on my phone with the times that's that counts off the exact hour, you know Greenwich Mean Time, mm -hmm. and I sat there with a trigger release watching my clock, and I pre-focused on the sun, and then two seconds before. The International Space Station crossed. I hit the shutter button and just taking shots, 
And then I pulled one of those for a photo and I stitched them together for a little video. That's awesome. So you can do the same thing for the moon. You can take your 500 F4 lens, point it at the moon, use this app and get a transit of the space station across the moon. Now I've done it with airplanes. If you're having to, there's a place I shoot in Colorado where I'm close to the airport and every now and then you get a jet going through the full moon, which is kind of cool. But the space station, now could you do that with your telescope? It's probably not going to track that fast, right? Because uh, that could. sucker is I, moving. Um, most telescope mounts won't track uh, space state, uh, the space station movements. The, the really expensive ones can. Uh, these companies making these mounts now are making them to sell to telecommunications companies. They need to be able to track. They use them not to do astrophotography, but to track all the space junk because they want to launch new satellites and they need to carefully map where all the other ones are. Where everything so else is. It's crazy. Yeah, but so my mount can't track uh, the space station movement, but there are some mounts out there that uh, that can. And so you can get a photo, an astrophoto of the space station, but it's not very high resolution. You just got too much. It's too small and you've got too much atmosphere you're trying to get through. And that's the thing. It's just way too small. I mean, you're never going to get detail and see... No, you can see, see you can see panels, you can see panels, you can see there's a central body and you can see a few panels, but you know, you can't see a lot of detail in them. Fascinating. I love it. I'm going to try it, (laughs) but I'm going to wait till it's a warm day in Alaska. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, summertime's the the best time for Milky Way shots. The problem up there is it's never dark. It's never dark enough. That's probably true. You, you You need to shoot. Around you want it to be f- quite dark. So around here, mm-hmm. that's about an hour and fifteen minutes after sunset when it's dark enough to shoot astrophotos. Up north, I don't know the transition period is going to be longer. Uh, but anyway, you want it fairly dark. You want no moon, and you want to be pointing south and find something interesting to put in the foreground, like a mountain, and try a couple mm-hmm. shots. Yeah, I'm gonna do it. September, you know, it gets dark enough in September where you could still get some of that stuff. Well, thank you very much for your time, Simone. We've gone longer than we said we were going to go, but it's been so intriguing and, and obviously things that we've never even talked about. And we didn't even get into, you know, time lapse with the Milky Way, that kind of thing, those different different types of challenges that are still available to us. But I greatly appreciate your time. It's It's been an honor to have you on the show. And I would strongly encourage everyone to not only go visit the Instagram feed, but also um, go check out the uh, the website as well. And we'll put links to both. So if you wouldn't mind, just go ahead and share with our audience where they can find you both with your website and on Instagram. Sure. Uh, Instagram, it's simon.dentremont, like spelled like Simon, dot d'entremont. Uh, my website's a bit stale, but it's uh, simon.dentremont.com. And uh, I'm on Facebook at uh, Simon D'Entremont Nature Photography. It's very Excellent. easy to find. I found it yesterday and mm-hmm. it's, there's some awesome stuff. But like you said, show notes, just go to our show notes page. I'll have links right yep. there and you just click on it and go. It's been great being on, guys. I've really enjoyed this. I, I'm, I'm a fan of uh, uh, both of your work as well as uh, your, your partners in crime that you have there. And uh, I love your uh, podcasts and, uh, and YouTube videos. Uh, keep it up, and hopefully someday I'll find my way 
down to the rockier part of the continent and uh, go shoot some big game or something. Anytime. We'll, we'll see you in the fall. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in time.